Today's TribCast is presented by Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. The 85th legislature took bold steps toward improving mental health care in Texas. Learn more about three behavioral health collaborative matching grant programs and find out if your community qualifies for $145 million in available funds. Learn more at hhs.texas.gov. And it's time, Texas. Texas health is in your hands. Plan to attend the Healthier Texas Summit in Austin on November 6th and 7th. Register at HealthierTexasSummit.com. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Hi, this is Chris Cobbler. I'm the editor of the Victoria Advocate and the proud father of Nicole Cobbler, two-time Texas Tribune reporting fellow, and Paul Cobbler, soon to be reporting fellow for the Texas Tribune during the spring semester. And now I'd like to introduce to you Tribcast host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you, Chris. This is Emily Ramshaw here on the first Wednesday in November with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly podcast about the biggest stories in Texas politics. I'm joined today by executive editor Ross Ramsey. In the Evan Smith chair. This is kind of scary. I know. How do you feel? Uh, loud. Yeah. <laughs> That's I feel how like you talking sound. faster than I normally do. <laughs> we have uh, investigative reporter Jim Malowitz on his very last Wednesday on the job before he leaves us for the nonprofit journalism world in Michigan. Hey there. As we go on, we'll remember all the puns we made together. Oh, uh, already so sad. Uh, and investigative fellow Shannon Najmabadi. Thank you for having me. Yes, we are. Uh, it's her inaugural TribCast, so uh, if you are going to send questions her way, um, be cruel. <laughs> <laughs> this is a hazing exercise. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, Jim, let's start with um, just a really fascinating investigation that you and your colleague Edgar Walters had this week. Um, it had to do with Texas Governor Greg Abbott and... Opioids. Opioids, yes. Um, and so this was a case um, uh, we reported on this state grant, a uh, Texas Enterprise Fund grant, uh, which is that big pot of money um, that's available to uh, try to lure companies into Texas. Um, Abbott um, issued a, nearly a $10 million grant from the TEF. Was to, that the, his yeah, largest? or th- That was his largest uh, in, uh, during his time in office. And it was also the largest uh, subsidy um, any state or um, local government had given t- to McKesson, which is a, the nation's largest uh, drug distributor. Distributor, um, and uh, so we took a look at this grant that was issued in 2016 um, in the context of this new um, sort of brewing legal battle over um, whether um, drug distributors like McKesson and other manufacturers have played a role in the opioid crisis that's uh, um, getting more and more attention recently. Um, and uh, it's kind of interesting because when Abbott um, issued this grant last year, he talked about how McKesson was so great for Texas and great for the economy. And now um, Attorney General Ken Paxton has joined a 41-state investigation of a bunch of um, drug companies, including McKesson. Um, and um, if they end up suing, um, like a bunch of counties have, they might start arguing that uh, McKesson, at least in the opioid contest, has cost Texas um, money, um, The you know, the, the money to fight uh, addiction and and the other um, consequences of a, an epidemic like this. Is there any outcome of this that could have McKesson not getting the 
economic development funds or having to give are them those, back. Is that money already expended or is it? Um, so so we still need to figure that out because um, we requested the uh, McKesson's contract to get more specifics, and that's kind of still in uh, in uh, the limbo of uh, our, our records request. Our so. in- inability to ever get anything we want right. that. Right, right. <laughs> the, uh, um, and Abbott wouldn't talk to you. His office did not comment on this story, correct? Right. We, we reached out to them several times and just nothing, no no response at all. So uh, we still haven't heard from, from Abbott on this, so it'll be kind of interesting to see how it goes forward. Mm-hmm. Um, a question on uh, Facebook or Twitter from Clement. So why does a company like this even need a grant? I mean, if they can't make money selling this kind of medication, like, you know, maybe they shouldn't be in business? Because yeah. they aren't opioids profitable? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so, so it's a good question, um, and that's partially why the um, Enterprise Fund has um, kind of been controversial with uh, some of your Freedom Caucus lawmakers have tried to move to defund it um, in just this past session. Um, but the, these are the grants that uh, the governor's office sort of use as the um, uh, the ones to make Texas sort of a competitive state. Um, you know, if McKesson is considering moving to other states, the idea is Texas is going to put some money down to get them to move um, here and then um, invest um, in jobs and and uh, in infrastructure and things like that, and it, in this case, Abbott's office had said that this um, this move to build this new uh, campus in North Texas would uh, benefit the state to the tune of like 157 million dollars. So that that was their math. Although you, you always kind of have to wonder, uh, uh, you know, who is. Uh, um, who is verifying Who's the Who's running the numbers. Yeah. Ross, am I remembering this correctly? And there, we have a question from um, someone identified as Blackjack. Um, didn't Abbott it's not... pirate. Yes. Didn't Abbott, like, not love the Enterprise Fund? I mean, wasn't... This was like a big Rick Perry initiative. There was a lot of talk about um, cronyism about around these funds and around, you know, Rick Perry's extensive use of these funds. And, you know, what, what you basically have is the states are caught in this sort of bribery contest where the... You know, companies, you know, Amazon's the famous one right now, or they'll throw down and say, hey, we're thinking about moving or expanding or doing whatever we're going to do, and we'd like to hear your state's proposals. And that often includes, you know, in the last 10 or 20 years, um, who's got the biggest bribe? Who's going to, you know, who's going to offer the best package, which basically means who's going to give us the most money to come there? It may be that the state can justify it, as in the case Texas tries to do. Uh, that you know we put 10 million in we get 100 million out or or whatever it is but you end up spending money you would not otherwise spend because other states are also spending money they wouldn't otherwise spend and everybody's caught in a spiral right right i mean is is, is this going to renew calls from conservative lawmakers to basically say like this thing needs to go the way of the dinosaur we've already talked about this a couple times and yet it still exists yeah, yeah. Yeah, it definitely gives them more ammunition if they want it. Um, and I had reached out to a couple um, uh, of those lawmakers who are kind of already critical of the fund for this story. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them, you know, for instance, uh, Connie Burton, she didn't know much of, um, you know, the, the McKesson context, so didn't want to comment on that in particular. But, you know, she reiterated, like, I am, you know, against the way that this is run kind of uh, on, a, on a whole whole scale level. Um, so right. um, if they want to... If they want to point to this too, they certainly can. They'll have another opportunity. You know, and there are all kinds of ways these can go wrong in, in the view of the critics. You know, either they don't produce the jobs they were going to produce or they don't produce the taxes they were going to produce or the Right. They're a gamble company, no matter what you do. <laughs> or a company expands and has some, you know, regular business risk and they their fortunes turn and they don't turn into the deal that you thought they would be. You know, they've had problems with the Cabela out on I-35 down mm-hmm. in um, Kyle or Buter or wherever that is. 
not producing the jobs that they thought it was going to produce. So do you claw back some of the money? In this case, you've got a company that's, you know, in um, a whole different messy can of worms. And you look at it and you go, A, can you claw back the money? And B, why didn't you know this or did you consider this when you were offering them this award and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And walk us through the political, potential political ramifications for anything. You know, I mean, there are a whole number of different angles. Obviously, you have the Trump administration right now saying, you know, that the opioid epidemic is a national, I don't know, I don't want to, there was a specific term he used as so as not to call it like a national emergency or something. But, you know, that to, that is a big crisis. So he's made it front and center. You know, you have the attorney general, somebody else, you know, sort of another top Republican investigating right. this you know, company at the same time the governor has allocated them funding. You know, what are the sort of political, how does this play out politically? Yeah, I mean, I guess we're going to have to see, but this is definitely one of those issues, uh, like you mentioned, that's uh, it's one of those rare um, issues that, that uh, gets bipartisan responses, and people right. all agree, I mean, including the drug companies agree that this is a crisis, that drug companies say that, that, that it's not their fault and they're trying to stop it. Um, but yeah, this is a case where you, you even have Donald Trump um, uh, agreeing with uh, a lot of Democrats that uh, we need to do something to um, to, to stop this, and, and Trump even in his speech uh, when he was declaring um, the crisis um, of, of national proportions um, said, you know, we might go against some of these drug companies ourselves. You know, we're not putting that uh, taking that off the table. So um, it's just, it, I guess, like right now we're just kind of describing it as an awkward position for Abbott, and partially because it's like it's hard to know how he's going to deal with it, just because he hasn't responded to us, um, which is uh, kind of a more and more common tactic from his office, uh, at least in dealing with stories I'm reporting. Yeah. Um, well, good but, thing you're moving to Michigan. <laughs> right. Suddenly well, they'll just start talking to us all the time. Yeah, yeah. but um, <laughs> you can start calling us again. Right? Yeah. But 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 it's definitely one of those issues that that could potentially draw criticism from from both sides of the aisle. If you've got 43 attorneys general involved, you already have a bipartisan coalition. And, you know, that's already going. The There was a newspaper, you can help me out on this, Emily, there was a newspaper in West Virginia that won the Pulitzer this year mm-hmm. for a couple of stories. Charleston. On, mm-hmm. Yep. For a couple of stories on um, the opioid ep- epidemic. And one of the main points in those stories that was interesting and I think is probably a centerpiece for these kinds of legal actions was that an incredible number of drugs had gone through a particular drugstore. Mm-hmm. And if anybody had just looked at how many drugs they were shipping to, right. it was a mom and pop kind of a drugstore. It wasn't one of the big chains. If they had just looked at the number of pills they were shipping there, they would have gone, hey, you know, we're shipping enough pills to give everybody in that county 100 pills a week. Yep. Maybe there's something wrong here. Oh, right, exactly. And, and, and so, and right now, um, just want to add to that you have a bunch of Texas counties that are now jumping into the litigation, suing kind of one by one, some East Texas ones. And I saw just yesterday in McClellan County, you know, where Waco is located, uh, sued. And, uh, the, the, or was that? McLennan. M- McLennan, sorry. Um, uh, tongue twister. You're um, going to have to leave the state. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm out of here. But uh, uh, some of the stats in there were, were really eye-opening. Uh, not as bad as West Virginia, but uh, uh, for every 100 people in the county, um, th- there was something along the lines of uh, 77 um, opioid prescriptions. So mm-hmm. it's uh, mm-hmm. kind of nuts. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, just a reminder, you can, um, if you're tuning in on Facebook, you should obviously send some questions and comments our way. Also, if you're listening on iTunes, um, please consider reviewing us and subscribing. Those ratings really help us reach more listeners like you. A recent review from Red House Watch, someone we clearly love, called the Tribcast <laughs> a great source for all things political in Texas, equal opportunity offenders that are able to rile both sides of the aisle. That's Ross's job, riling both sides of the aisle. So um, <laughs> please, please uh, leave a review there if you can. Um, all right, let's talk 
about one other huge investigation that the Trib broke this week. It's been a big week, and this one in partnership with the news site NerdWallet. Uh, Shannon, you and your colleague Jay Root had just an incredible piece on how, uh, this is really stunning, but how renting furniture in Texas can land you in jail. Is that as straightforward as it sounds? Pretty much. So we worked with NerdWallet, and NerdWallet focused more on some of the hardball collection tactics these rent-to-own companies use and the financial aspects of the industry. We focus pretty much exclusively on the use of criminal statutes by these companies to collect on debts from customers. So what that means is that essentially, instead of relying on civil remedies like lawsuits or repossession, these rent-to-own companies can file theft charges on customers who don't return the items they rented and also fail to make payments and don't respond to a certified letter. And so, okay, first of all, talk to me about furniture rental in in Texas or nationally. I mean, is this a common thing? Does it happen through furniture companies? Is it like layaway used to be? I mean, how, how does it work? Um, so we focus on rent to own, which is essentially you, and again, NerdWallet focused on some of the financial aspects of it mm. because it's not exactly a great, um, it doesn't make a lot of economic sense if you want to actually own the items. Right. But you can go to one of these stores and put we go on a payment plan essentially where you pay X number of dollars a month or bi week or weekly or um, whatever the terms of the contract are. And the contracts we looked at, they had language that said essentially like rental purchase contract. So like the language is in there that if you are a savvy consumer and you look at it really carefully, you can see that, you know, I don't own I don't own this furniture and like look if I actually want to own it, I have to pay like three times the actual cash price of the furniture. Mm-hmm. But it's fairly dense. And some of the customers we spoke to who had gone crossways with these companies, they kind of thought that they were buying the furniture. Right. They, they didn't like realize they were, they were actually renting. Yeah, they were they just felt, renting it. Yeah. They felt they were being misled. They thought that they were on essentially like an installment plan to buy the furniture. Mm. Right. So all right, so then how does that play out? Like why why are you facing criminal charges potentially in Texas if you miss a payment on your rental furniture versus just a civil penalty? And did any of these yeah. folks like end up in jail? I mean what Yeah, that what? was the really stunning part of it, is that and that's kind of what drew us into the what story. Are you in is for? that a sofa? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. exactly. And a love were, seat. Yeah. Right. <laughs> people were really surprised by that. A lot of the people that we spoke to, um, even the ones that didn't f- completely end up in jail, you know, they got pulled over for some minor infraction and they found out they had a warrant out for their arrest because of some sofa payment. And it was just, you know, mind-boggling. They didn't know right. that this was something that companies could come after them for in this way. But um, And this was like the kind of law, I mean, this sounds exactly like the kind of law that is, you know, snuck in there basically like by a lobbyist who tweaks some language in a bill. I mean, where did this <laughs> where did this language come from? How did this even become a permissible in Texas? Good setup. Um, <laughs> Thanks. That's what I'm here for. Yeah, I'll be here all week and next week. <laughs> as far as we can tell, it started, this provision that um, is at issue in our story was added to the Texas Penal Code in 1977 by, as you said, a lobbyist. He was actually from the rental equipment lobby. So this is things like compressors or heavy machinery used for construction. Was it ever supposed to be used for love seats? No, exactly. That's the thing is right. that the rent-to-own industry was kind of able to piggyback and use the terms of this statute to their advantage. Um, but it was really meant for people that would rent, you like know, like renting a, a jackhammer or something, a compressor, and then right. they take it and it's, you know, expensive. It's a big loss. And the provision that was added to the penal code in 1977 essentially made it much easier to prosecute these kinds of cases because, and this is what we thought was really interesting, is it, it shifted the burden of proof. So instead of a rent to own customer who doesn't return property being presumed to be innocent, they're now presumed to have stolen the the goods if they don't meet a couple of criteria. Wow. And so a couple of questions online. Um, Anne asks, so how can folks pay off the rest of their love seat if they're in jail and, <laughs> and unable to earn money? <laughs> 
That's a really great question. Um, <laughs> they can't, I think, is the answer, right? Yeah. The, or it depends on how long they're, you know, they're Well, the deal is they for. just take the love seat back and rent to own it to somebody else, right? Well, right. I, well, yeah, that's part of the company's motive is that they can re-rent these items. But I think that... Um, Lightly used love seat. Yeah, I mean, we looked through a lot of court records, and it seems like a lot of these um, people that ended up in the DA's office took deferred adjudication. You know, they took plea deals where they paid restitution to the company. So the money does, or the company does get money back in that way. But I think it's also used kind of as a threat, you know, where someone will see, oh my God, there's a warrant out for my arrest. Like, let me just give you, you know, the money back or the furniture back, whatever you want. It's funny, we're seeing, you know, comments and questions on this from sort of from from both sides of this issue. We, you know, have a question from Amy that says, isn't this a form of debtor's prison? And we have a question from Robert that says, isn't it theft to take what you don't pay for? <laughs> so I can respond to both of those. Yeah. You're both right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people have, com uh, including some of the lawmakers we reached out to for response on Friday after we published the article, they did liken it to a debtor's prison where if you can't pay, you're punished with, um, you know, imprisonment. Well, wouldn't the, you know, if it was a car or something, the if you didn't make your payment, they take the car back. That's a repo. And, you know, yeah. then you can settle the civil suit and say you still owe us money, but we're now in possession of the property. And, you know, the, the idea here is that you've committed a crime and the civil process can still go on, right? Um, they yeah. Can, they can still sue you for this. So right. I think that, um, to answer the second person's point, I don't think that anyone disputes the fact that if you don't return the items or, you know, you don't fulfill the terms of your contract, that there should be some penalty to you. It's just a question of if if a criminal statute should be, if you know, if you should end up with a felony on your record because you didn't fulfill the terms of a civil contract. Right. I mean, you know, I think then some folks are asking about different types of payments. So like, you know, what do utility companies do if customers miss a payment? You know, they oh, yeah. obviously turn off, turn off, turn off yeah. the gas, right? What other, you know, what do they do? They repossess your car if you miss mm -hmm. your car payments. It's, right. It seems like this one is sort of so specifically written so that you can use the criminal statute to, to penalize or even imprison folks right. yeah. around, so around furniture. Basically for one exactly. industry. Yeah. yeah. Right. Thank right. you. <laughs> well, so you spoke to this a little bit, but how have um, legislators on both sides of the aisle responded to this particular story? Yeah. Um, so we published fast, a story actually. Friday. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> Within we, a couple hours, I think. Yeah. We started reaching out to people pretty early Friday, and we actually got a pretty bipartisan, a pretty bipartisan commitment to um, look at this issue and potentially sponsor legislation in the 2019 legislative session that would um, essentially take the criminal aspect of this out. Mm. So we spoke to uh, Republicans like Senator Connie Burton and a couple of representatives in the House who um, kind of committed to just saying, like, if no one else sponsors legislation, I will. And I think that we could get bipartisan support for some kind of measure. I mean, Connie Burton's been all over the Tribcast today. <laughs> yep. Uh, all right. Well, uh, just a reminder, if you're tuning in, there have been lots of good questions so far today, but keep them coming. Um, I want to talk about a wild story that we didn't get to at all last week with all the news in the speaker's race, and that's the fallout in the case over State Representative Donna Dukes. Uh, turns out she's now had all the charges against her dropped by the Travis County DA's office. Right. Ross, what happened here? The prosecutors really screwed this up, um, and the House really screwed this up. You know, there was a, a question of whether she had been reimbursed for expenses for which she had not, um, she wasn't entitled to be reimbursed, basically. And, you know, one of the points of contention was that if you, uh, can you get paid for your visits to the Capitol, and do they check to see that you actually visited the Capitol in order to get paid for those visits? And it turns out that yeah, you can get paid when you don't visit. And the uh, the case fell apart over this. You know, it said, you know, maybe, you know, the way the prosecutors were reading the law and reading the procedures in the House, 
It looked to them as if Donna Dukes had been being reimbursed for things for which she should not be reimbursed. But after they really checked their work, they found that the way the House enforces their rules, um, that she had not violated their rules and that they didn't have a case. And so they've got this situation where, you know, there was a famous labor secretary uh, in in uh, national politics who went through a scandal and got exonerated and said, where do I go to get my reputation back? And that's a little bit where mm -hmm. Donna Dukes is now. She's, you know, now has to rebuild the reputation that the prosecutors have been um, tearing away at all of this time. She's got a bunch of opponents she might not have otherwise had who are coming in to run against Donna Dukes because, you know, of this and that and the other thing. She still has a lot of things uh, probably to answer for politically, but in terms of a legal prosecution and a criminal case, uh, it completely fell apart. I mean, they also dropped the misdemeanors, right? So there were, se there were right. felony charges. There she settled a couple of things charges. and paid, uh, you know, a couple of things back. But, you know, for the most part, this was a... Um, she got dragged through the mud, and and the prosecutors didn't have, um, they couldn't back their case. So, how big of a black eye is this for the Travis County DA's office? I mean, they were you know crowing that they had this case and that they were you know trying to get her to settle. And this they... makes them look like a bunch of clowns, and they've looked like clowns on a bunch of other things in the past. You know, from the Jim Maddox prosecutions thirty years ago through Kay Bailey Hutchison through Donna Dukes and on and on and on and on and on. They look like they can't Rick put Perry. a leg, they, they yeah. look like they can't put a Lego set back together, much less a prosecution. Woof. And 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 they and they are in a legislature that has wanted to take away their power for some time, and they're just empowering the people who want to disembowel this office. I, right, I although this time they're going after a Democrat, which generally, you know. They've given them all the ammo they need. I mean, they even said that they, like, you know, misread a date on her cell phone. Like, uh, that's really, you know, it's, small ball. You know, you'd fire a reporter for this, much less a prosecutor. Damn. Hope the Travis County DA's <laughs> office is listening. Ross is about to get a memo. Um, <laughs> so I mean, go ahead. They'll probably right. be misspelled. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is this? Is there any element? Is there a sort of like a ding against? You know, obviously we know House and Senate administration. It's already sort of pretty confusing. Is this a, a ding against them for not having clear policies? Is that? Is How that is it that you can get reimbursed <laughs> for your time at the Capitol when you're not at the Capitol? I mean, you have to ask a question like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the you know, if she followed the rules as they exist, that's fine, peace, you know, you don't have a criminal charge here. Okay, that's the first question. That's out of the way now. If the rules don't make any sense, like you can get reimbursed for uh, your daily expenses of working at the Capitol when you're not at the Capitol, hello? Right. I mean, how does that make sense? Explain mm -hmm. that to your mother. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and in this case, too, wasn't it the case where she had... Um, her office had falsely um, reported that she was at the Capitol um, right. initially, right. but 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 that couldn't be a crime if if you, there was no reason to falsely report that if you're going to get the money. Right, either right. Way. So yeah, yeah it, it was inconsequential because it doesn't matter whether she was there or not. Right. So how does it not matter whether she was there or not is really the rules question, and and do they need to clean up their act? All right, they I mean, wouldn't I, allow this yeah. in any agency. You know, I, I am curious how voters react to this because there are there are elements of this that are probably sort of more frustrating to voters than even this particular case. Things like, you know, her not showing up to work, her missing all those votes. I mean, right. countless votes that she missed. Her she had a staffer who um, was, was babysitting you know, for has, her. Has, you know, and they had to reimburse them, you know, that right. was, you know, called on to do personal errands and things like that. Uh, there's a lot here, and frankly, the people running against Donna Dukes are going to make a lot of you know, mailers out of all of that stuff. 
but the the use of the prosecutor's office to criminally prosecute stuff that they hadn't backed up before they came out is you know really really embarrassing to Travis County. Right. Well, you, well, well, I guess I wonder too though. Like in some ways, could she benefit from this now? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously her name was dragged through the mud, but now she's beaten the charges. Like the Travis County DA like doesn't look good in it. Right. And even if there are some uncomfortable questions for her to answer politically, couldn't she just say? Hey, this was a ridiculous prosecution, and and it and they dropped the charges, so so there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong here. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's a St. George and the Dragon. You know, you come up with these things, and you know they they did it, the things that they did wrong to some extent erase the things that you did wrong, and make you look like you survived a persecution. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. the The court of public opinion on our Twitter and Facebook feed is speaking right now and saying things like, "She was never at the Capitol. She didn't vote. Um, hope the voters of her district vote her out. Never mind the legal issues. She's always absent." Well, I mean, that's actually a, the interesting thing about the politics here is there's right. a legal issue. There's a set of legal issues, you know, and we sort of settled that out. But the mm-hmm. political issues. I mean, it's 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 a haywire piece of politics. She's put herself in political trouble. Right. I, I want to go back to this sort of question of, of who prosecutes in the Travis County DA's office, it, its relationship with the legislature. Phil Prezan, the reporter, um, asks, I thought the new policy was that the Texas Rangers investigate public officials, then hand their evidence over to the local DA. Um, you know, wh- how does that work now? Didn't I don't that know change where, that's last true, session? I don't know where this one falls on that timeline. I don't know when yeah, they started right. investigating this, who put it together, who's to blame for this. The investigators fouled this up and, mm-hmm. you know, they they made some assumptions that they shouldn't have made. They didn't check their work. Yep. All right. Well, just a reminder, we've got a few more minutes and you can send questions our way. Uh, I'm going to stick with you for a couple minutes, Ross, to, to return to the subject of the speaker's race. Obviously, this was the topic of the entire Tribcast last week. <laughs> right. um, you had a column this week telling all of us to basically slow our roll. Chill out. Uh, <laughs> this is going to take a long time. You know, the, the speakers, the last time we had an open speakers race, I get to play old man here. The, the yeah, last time we had You don't a, have to play it very hard. <laughs> it's a natural part. <laughs> uh, the, the last time we had an open seat speakers race was when Gib Lewis was leaving after the 91 session and a bunch of prominent members of the House began angling for the job. Pete Laney was in there, Jim Rudd, who was then the appropriations chairman, uh, David Kane, who was the transportation chairman, the Ways and Means chairman, uh, James Shuri. A bunch of people were running for this job. Shannon probably wasn't even born yet. And it became... <laughs> <laughs> Don't answer that question. It, it became evident very quickly that this was less about politics and more about reputation mm-hmm. and collegiality and what the House wanted the speaker to do. So, you know, every speaker is to some extent a reaction to the last speaker. We, we, we're tired of this. We want to go that way. You know, some kind of procedural yeah. things like that. And everybody in the House is looking at this and thinking either I'm going to be the next speaker or I'm going to be... I have an opportunity here to be better situated in the House than I was under Joe Strauss. You know, whether I like Joe Strauss or not, I wasn't a chairperson or I wasn't, you know, on the committee that I wanted or uh, the office space wasn't great or I get that parking space back Mm -hmm. in the corner, whatever it was. And they're going to be working all of those angles and talking to people and messing with this for a long time. I mean, at least a year, right? Well, the second part of this is you haven't elected the the voters yet. You know, the people who are going to elect the next speaker get elected in March in the primaries and then in November of next year in the general election. But let's be honest, probably mostly in to, March. Probably, yeah. probably 20 to 30 member turnover if it's mm-hmm. a normal year. And everybody who wants to be speaker has to find 76 votes. And you know, I, I think part of this is you know everybody's assuming that you're either going to be running as a Republican or as a Democrat. That's part of it, but a lot of it is that you're going to be running as an individual and 
do you get along with these people? It's a little bit like running for president of your senior class. Mm -hmm. You know all the voters. They all have relationships. Uh, I'm not going to vote for you because you pushed me off the slide in third grade. They're going to remember all the slights. They're going to remember all the favors. And each member is going to cast a vote that makes the most sense for them at the end. And they're not going to do it till the last minute. So what you're saying is all of our efforts to uh, read the tea leaves between now and then are a waste of time? No, I think there's going to be a lot of stuff going on. You know, some of these, you know, I, I expect there to be a bunch of candidates at the outset of this thing who don't survive through the middle of the race. You know, mm -hmm. so you'll get a dozen people who say, well, you know, I might be interested. And when you get down to it, you'll have four or five. What do, I mean, do you think the names we have right now will follow us through to the end? Remind us who those, those you names know, are. You know, some of them. There's two candidates who've actually gotten into the race. Phil King from Weatherford, a Republican, got into the race before Strauss announced he was going to run against Strauss. Mm -hmm. And John Zerwas, the appropriations chairman from Richmond, also a Republican, declared 32 nanoseconds after Strauss decided not to run. Um, and then we've heard a bunch of other names along the way. You know, uh, people have mentioned, you know, sort of like, who are you all talking about? You know, um, I'm going to miss names. For Price, Drew Darby, um, help me out here. Um, Travis Clardy had told his local paper that he's interested in this. Mm -hmm. Eric Johnson from Dallas, a Democrat, says he's interested in the race. Mm -hmm. uh, this list is going to expand, and then I think it's probably going to contract a little bit, and we'll get four or five really serious candidates, and uh, they'll be flying around the state visiting people in their offices. And it's funny. I sat next to Sinfronia Thompson on Friday night at a conversation that we got to have, and I teased her and said, you know, are you interested in running for speaker? You've done it before. And she looked at me, and she said, are you crazy? <laughs> I said, I got enough problems in my district to deal with right now. And I said, well, you know, there's. what do you think about the sort of drama and intrigue about around all this? And she rolled her eyes and was like, girl, I've been through this so many times <laughs> she's before. She's been through seven or eight of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She really knows these things. Yep. Ha has there been one woman who has... Um suggested that she might run or is that nope. no and it's interesting i mean you know one of my favorite horrible statistics about the texas legislature is that we've had 5415 men in the texas legislature since we started having a texas legislature and we've had 55 women um so, you know, there's not as many numbers. We haven't had a real uh, serious candidate pop up in this round, although I think we probably could. Mm -hmm. There's still time. There's still time. Lots of time. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. Uh, if you like listening to the Tribcast every week, please do us a favor, like I begged you earlier, and leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, those ratings help us reach more listeners like you. And if you support the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music. And on behalf of Ross, Shannon, and Jim, we will miss you, Jim. Uh, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Do you have trouble hearing women's voices? Yeah, I have trouble hearing everybody's voices. <laughs> <laughs>